From ancient times, the Liturgy of the Hours has served as the public and communal prayer of God's people. It has been called the Vox Sponsae, the voice of a bride, addressed to her bridegroom. It is the very prayer which Christ himself, together with his church, offers to the Father for the glory of God and the salvation of the world. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Vogue Sponsae, a podcast on the Liturgy of the Hours brought to you by the St. Thomas More House of Prayer. My name is Nathan Wigfield, and I am really excited about today's episode. Not only am I joined once again by my friend Gabriel Crawford in Seattle, Washington, but we also had the chance of sitting down with Wayne Hepler, the founder of the St. Thomas More House of Prayer, to interview him. We asked him all kinds of questions and heard from him on everything ranging from his in, the initial call that he received to ministry in his childhood through to his days as a Protestant pastor, and then to his conversion to the Catholic Church, entering the Catholic Church, falling in love with the Liturgy of the Hours, which of course then led to him building the St. Thomas More House of Prayer out of a deep desire to share this prayer with as many people as possible. So it's a great interview, but at the end... It's going to end abruptly. We lost all internet connection, and it cut off, and we lost just a little bit of the interview, but we were able to salvage most of it. So when you get to the end, it's going to end abruptly, but know this. We have decided to make this a two-part interview, so we are going to continue this interview in another episode, and we're going to sit down once again with Wayne, and we're going to dive even deeper into some of the questions that we started to explore and some of the things that we started to open up around the church's teaching on the Liturgy of the Hours in the second half of the interview. So I apologize for the technical difficulties, but even with that, I think you're really going to enjoy this episode of Vogue Sponsae. So thanks for listening, and God bless. All right, well, this is the one, the only, Gabriel Luke Mary Crawford from Seattle, Washington. I'm here today with Nathan Wigfield, somewhere in western Pennsylvania, and a man named Wayne. Nate, can you tell us who Wayne is? <laughs> All right. Hey, well, uh, it's good to be back. It's good to be back with you, Gabriel. Uh, it's been uh, over a month, I think. Uh, we've uh, recorded a couple episodes. We had our interview with uh, Father Timothy Gallagher, and then an episode on the uh, continuing our series on the general instructions, um, and I'm glad that we're kind of back uh, back together. It's good to good to see you, good to hear you, and uh, we'll be we'll be continuing uh, our you know kind of talking about uh, moving forward through the summer months, and you know what kind of topics we'll be we'll be discussing in future episodes. Uh, but today we have uh, another guest, our second guest on the podcast. And uh, I've been really excited about this one. I've been wondering if it was if it was really going to happen. But uh, we have uh, Wayne Hepler with us, who is the founder of the St. Thomas More House of Prayer. And uh, I have known of him for the past three three or four years, uh, but have uh, worked really closely and have gotten to know him very well over this past year since uh, my family and I moved up to. Uh, Cranberry, Pennsylvania, and I started serving as the director here. So uh, Wayne and uh, his wife, Patty, are uh, from here in in Cranberry, uh, Pennsylvania, and they uh, have 13 children. They're converts to the Catholic faith. Uh, they have... Um, they have really kind of put down put down roots here and have embraced and answered a call to a ministry of spreading devotion to the liturgy of the hours and and so obviously in, in an explicit way that has happened uh, through the St. Thomas More House of Prayer uh, or I should say in an official way uh, but uh, I think the history kind of goes back farther than that and so that's really where we're going to begin today uh, asking uh, Wayne just uh, to tell us a little bit about. How he first heard of the liturgy of the hours, and also how he started to come to uh, or started praying the liturgy of the hours. So Wayne, why don't you uh, share a little bit about yourself and how you got started on the liturgy of the hours? Okay. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Nate, you're jumping the gun here. All right, Wayne. Yes. Can you tell? Can you tell us a bit about like where you grew up, where you're from? Like, did you grow up? 
I th think Nate said you uh, converted to Catholicism. Could you, um, before we jump into the Liturgy of the Hours, just maybe give us some of the some of the backstory, paint the okay. picture? All right. I I grew up uh, right here in the little village. It's actually the village of Van, V-A-N, uh, uh, just a half mile from the, where we built the House of Prayer. Uh, grew up in a fundamentalist, free Methodist uh, family. Uh, Learned uh, obedience to uh, Jesus Christ, and uh, you know, was you know sat under uh, hellfire and damnation preaching most of my uh, younger years, and uh, that uh, gave me a sense that uh, if you know, the concept of God made sense at all, that. Uh, a person, even if you didn't really like him, you would still take him seriously and try to follow, uh, you know, what you thought he wanted you to do. And, you know, and they, you know, even pagans have that much sense. And so, you know, to, so very early I determined that if I knew what God wanted me to do, that even if I didn't like it, I would do it anyway. So that, uh, you know, you know the, the, the search for truth and the commitment, the prior commitment to following truth uh, wherever it led us was the dynamic that led us into the Catholic Church. Yeah, was that a, was that a long transition into that, the Catholic Church, or was it like, bam, I'm in? Uh, it was a long transition that we didn't really realize where it was leading us, and then it was, bam, we're in. <laughs> it, were there, um, so out in, out in the van, is this like a conversion van, or is it like no, a minivan? This is Van, Pennsylvania. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> It had growing okay, up. Okay. So, was, it, so was growing it, up, it probably had uh, eighty people in the little village. No Catholics. Yeah. No Catholics. No Catholics. Yeah. So you were kind of uh, kind of going against the grain. Uh, right? We just we just counted them up the other day. We've repopulated it to now that there are actually seventy Catholics in the little village of Van. <laughs> Well, if each Catholic family has more than one kid, you know you're going to end up having well, well my old, Catholics, right? My <laughs> my oldest my oldest daughter has eleven, and my third daughter has nine. So, right there, you have twenty that uh, are uh, now inhabiting the little village of Van. That's excellent. So you guys, uh, so Nate, you guys you converted. You came in in 1984, right? We converted to the church in 1984. And you know why I remember that? Because uh, that's when you were George born. Orwell. That's the year I was born. <laughs> 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 so you you came into the church in '84, and could you t tell us a little bit about the process uh, that led you to discovering the Liturgy of the Hours and started uh, to pray it in your own life? Uh, soon after we uh, converted to the Catholic Church, uh, the parish that we entered uh, adopted the, the, what was uh, called the Renew Program, which was a uh, small group parish renewal program that uh, encouraged uh, the parishioners to you know, enroll in uh, you know, the smaller groups and then meet periodically mm -hmm. to pursue a renewal of their faith mm -hmm. and uh, it, it was providentially within uh, the small group that I was in there was a lady who had been a nun in a, the convent uh, the Benedictine convent in Erie uh, in her early life but then she had left the convent uh, and married and had a family and uh, so it was being part of the small group that we met her, and it was you know, when she uh, found out that uh, I was a clergy convert that uh, you know that piqued her interest. That hey, when the, the when renew is over, we should continue 
our small group and you should do a Bible study for us. <laughs> so, uh, and that sounded like a good idea to me because you know, that's what I thought I was good at. And I'd actually, back in Flint, Michigan, when I was a free Methodist clergy, we had joined forces with the local Episcopal church and I was trained in the Bethel Bible series and, uh, you know, implemented that in the Episcopal parish. So, uh, so when we, uh, the Renew program was over, uh, we uh, began to meet at her house on a Wednesday evening uh, to do Bible study. And uh, I can't tell you why, but it was of a certainty that that Bible study was going nowhere. <laughs> and uh, after a, a Two or three frustrating weeks. She, you know, uh, fortunately suggested, "What do you think? It, it might be a good idea if we pray the uh, evening prayer from the Liturgy of the Hours instead of doing the Bible study." Switch it up a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, we thought that was a great idea, and so she bought us our original uh, single volume Christian prayer books pasted the uh, common prayers uh, uh, on the inside covers and you know, wrote out the basic instructions. And uh, on Wednesday evenings, we would you know, load up uh, the kids and head over to their house. And uh, a couple other of the members of our small group joined us and we began to pray evening prayer from the Liturgy of the Hours uh, once a week. What did you think of it? When you first encountered uh, the liturgy. Surprisingly, coming from a free Methodist background, one of the freedoms of the free Methodist church was freedom from any kind of liturgical style of worship. <laughs> but uh, when we began to pray the liturgy of the hours at evening prayer, uh, it, you know, you know, it had a very positive and uh, uh, you know, deep appeal to my sense of worshiping in the way that was prescribed rather than a freestyle of uh, worship that everybody participated according to how they felt the spirit moving them. So uh, I liked it. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to uh, folks who come from similar background. And I'm, I'm one of these as well, just in terms of, you know, having grown up in a, an environment and evangelical community where, uh, you know, any kind of notion of written prayers or rote prayers or anything that you would do to pray according to custom or ritual, or we never use the word liturgy, but essentially that w was what was meant uh, was kind of frowned upon. And I remember when first started to discover uh, praying with uh, some of the works of the saints and, you know, praying through the Psalms, also discovering various editions within the Protestant world of uh, like a book of common prayer. This was such a free, it was actually it had the effect of being uh, freeing for the soul to be able to pray according to something that is received rather than something that is contrived or you know, kind of sprung into being from, uh, you know, s somewhere within, you know. So I, I found the same thing to be true uh, in my own life and in conversation with many people who have discovered liturgical prayer to be that it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Believe it or not, growing up, I was painfully shy. And so being in the context of mm. maybe being called on, you know, uh, spontaneously to offer, you know, a prayer that I was then going to have to formulate in my m own mind, uh, that was uh, pretty uh, nerve wracking for me. Yeah. <laughs> and even after I uh, went through you know, college and Protestant seminary, you know, the practice of spontaneous prayer in public, uh, I never really thought I was very good at it. Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting, like, I think for the longevity of prayer, right, to to endure a lifetime of prayer, to have that the structure of the liturgy 
um, is a great resource, you know, like what you're saying. But then also to have those moments where we can pray spontaneously, where um, corad cor loquitor, right? Heart speaks to heart um, sometimes in our own prayers. But that resonates with me. Like there was a great, um, I often felt the pressure to when I had to pray in my own words um, to what am I going to say? And sometimes I wanted to impress others with my prayers. Um, mm. I wanted to be an impressive prayer. I didn't want to be a lame <clears throat> prayer. Um, but then to like, I definitely found that experience of like, if all of my prayer is spontaneous and developing out of, out of my own words, um, it became difficult to, uh, to endure over time that, mm. uh, but the, I found the liturgy to be a certain structure over time you know, to give me words when I needed words. And when well, it, re- it re- just reminded me of what uh, Paul VI said in the Apostolic Constitution with which he introduced the revision of the Liturgy of the Hours in 1973. He says pr- precisely this, any conflict between the prayer of the church and personal prayer must be entirely rejected and the relationship between them strengthened and enlarged. If the prayer of the divine office becomes general, genuine personal prayer, the relationship between the liturgy and the whole Christian life also becomes clearer. Hmm. The whole life of the faithful, hour by hour, during day and night, is a kind of liturgy or public service in which the faithful give themselves over to the ministry of love toward God and men, identifying themselves with the action of Christ who by his life and self-offering sanctified the life of all mankind. Hmm. I love, I love the line. um, And to paraphrase, I think it was, it was along the lines of that all the life of the Christian faithful um, becomes a prayer. It says, if the prayer of the divine office becomes genuine personal prayer. And I think that's what, is sometimes not uh, recognized is that somehow to have the prayer, you know, written out in words that that somehow robs us of being able to genuinely, you know, enter into the prayer, you know, with a personal, you know, uh, conviction, you know, that I think what uh, Paul the sixth is saying is that that's not necessarily true. Is that you know, you know we, the words that are prescribed can indeed become our genuine personal expression at any particular time? Mm-hmm. I think too. It's uh, you know, if we're if we're really seeking to pray with the mind of Christ, you know, to pray the prayer that He Himself has given us is to you know is to be <clears throat> formed by Christ's own prayer. It's almost like the deepest sentiments of our own hearts are revealed through his prayer. You know, he knows he knows us more than we know ourselves. And, you know, the most authentic uh, way that I know how to pray is sometimes not in uh, I would I would suggest is rarely in tune with the deepest, the deepest places, the deepest longing of my heart, because I'm I'm usually so enamored by what I can see, taste, touch and feel. And, uh, you know, Christ, you know, it's almost like praying, praying the Psalms specifically, you know, it's almost like something rising from the depths of my heart that I never knew was there before. And, uh, but it also reminds me, you know, this paragraph by, uh, Paul VI reminds me of, I think it's John Paul II who's, you know, when he said, when he says in his, uh, in what is it? Novo millennio innuente, uh-huh. uh, he said he calls for all parishes to become genuine schools of Christian prayer, uh, but he he talks about the liturgy as being the source of all genuine prayer. Well, the catechism, it's I mean the catechism and the general instruction says precisely that mm. that the liturgy of the the it is the liturgy is the source. It says, it says exactly mm. that. Yeah. You know, you you started praying the Liturgy of the Hours. You were introduced to the Liturgy of the Hours through a Bible study. And 
eventually ended up founding and building a retreat center with uh, and answering the call to take on the mission, specific mission of praying and promoting the Liturgy of the Hours. So how did the Liturgy of the Hours become <clears throat> such a key part in your life that you wanted to share it with as many people as possible? As many people as possible. So uh, we... Uh, Mary Louise bought us the Christian prayer books and suggested we pray the liturgy hours. Uh, I was familiar enough with the liturgy of the church, you know, from reading uh, the sacred constitution on the sacred liturgy to have a vague uh, understanding of, uh, you know, how the liturgy hours was part of the sacred liturgy, which if you read the constitution on the sacred liturgy, you understand that the church takes very seriously, you know, who, how, and when the, the liturgy is, uh, you know, uh, entered into. And so when you read such things that no one, even though they be a priest, may change a single word in the sacred liturgy without proper authority and you're concerned about entering into the church properly, you know, my first concern was, you know, are we really allowed to do this? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, fortunately, the uh, single-volume Christian prayer book has an abridged edition of the general instruction. So the first thing, you know, uh, clergy converts are, you know, tend to be gluttonous in their <laughs> consumption of things related to church teaching and, right. you know, those things. So, you know, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to learn everything about it that I can to make sure that I'm doing it properly according to how the church intends it to mm-hmm. be done. And so I you know, started, you know, reading the abridged uh, instructions to the liturgy of the hours uh and uh, when i got to uh paragraph 27 i knew that we were okay because mm-hmm. it says gatherings of the laity for prayer apostolic work or any other reason are encouraged to fulfill the church's office by celebrating part of the liturgy of the hours the laity must learn especially in liturgical liturgical actions how to adore God the Father in spirit and in truth and be reminded through public worship and prayer they are in touch with all mankind and can contribute in no small degree to the salvation of the whole world. Mm -hmm. When I read that I knew I wanted to get in on that and (laughs) it only made sense that I would want as many of my friends to share that uh, as possible. Mm-hmm. And in another place, the church says that uh, those who render this service are sharing in the greatest honor of Christ's spouse. They are standing before the throne of God in the name of the church, their mother, interceding for the salvation of the whole world. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's either true or it's not true. And if it's true, then I couldn't imagine that everybody wouldn't want to get in on it. And so I put together my own set of instructions as to how to go about praying the Liturgy of the Hours because you don't have to you know, attempt it very many times before you, you know, figure out, hey, this isn't easy to pull this off, mm-hmm. especially if you're introducing it in a group to other people that are completely unfamiliar with it. So I put together a step-by-step instruction guide and then began to you know wherever we were you know if if friends came to our house for a natural family planning uh, teacher support group why i introduced them to the liturgy of the hours and i you know gave them a set of instructions if uh, i you know met with other parents uh, at the school to you know do something I suggested we start with evening mm-hmm. prayer. I you know, got in trouble with the other parents for suggesting that we get together to pray the liturgy of the hours for the sake of the salvation of our children. You know, they didn't think, they thought that was uh, 
superstitious. <laughs> so, but it didn't deter me uh, because you know I saw, and as we you know, we continued to investigate what the church says in relationship to the liturgy of the hours, we began to understand that uh, this is a prayer that you know about which the church says in the sacred constitution on the sacred liturgy, accordingly, every liturgical celebration as an activity of Christ, the priest, and of his body, which is the church, is a sacred action of a preeminent kind. Hmm. No other action of the church equals its title to power or its degree of effectiveness. That's either true or it's not true. And if you accept it as true, then, and you want to pray effectively, and you, you know, are constantly meeting other people whose you know, primary concern in regards to their spiritual life is that they're not very good at praying, all of a sudden you believe you have the answer to their questions as to how you could establish a discipline of prayer that you can sustain over time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I took seriously what paragraph 27 said. And, you know, in, you know, at every chance at every, you know, whether, you know, as I said, you know, no matter, you know, what we were doing, if it had any relationship to the church, uh, you know, I would, you know, begin with the, whatever hour in the uh, liturgy was appropriate for the time, Mm -hmm. whether it was morning, evening, uh, night. uh, So that, uh, you know, that was, we did that all through the late 80s and up till, you know, the, you know, into the uh, last uh, years of uh, the uh, 20th century. And uh, somewhere, I think, 1996 or 1997, uh, Pope St. John Paul XXII uh, began to prepare the church for the Great Jubilee, uh, the year 2000. And as part of that preparation, I think he, you know, 96, or 97, 98, and 99 was dedicated to each dedicated to one of the persons of the Blessed mm-hmm. Trinity. And it was in that context that he introduced the uh, idea of the new evangelization. And uh, by this time, our uh, oldest daughter had married and had moved uh, away from home. And so I, you know, on the hill close by our house, uh, I thought, well, you know, now that my kids are, you know, getting married and moving out, when they come back home, you know, I'll build a, uh, you know, small, you know, vacation cottage that they can stay at while they're home for vacation. And uh, so that was my original intention for the uh, property where this house of prayer is located. And but John Paul II, as he prepared the church for the th- third millennium, began to say specifically and encourage the laity to consider doing something that would aid the church in the new evangelization. So that caught my attention, and I began to think, well, uh, rather than just you know build a you know, vacation you know cottage. For my family, maybe God is asking me to do something, you know, more than that. And so with that thought in mind, uh, I woke up one morning and took out a uh, tablet of graph paper and I sketched out uh, what now you see as the St. Thomas Morehouse of Prayer. And when I was done, I was taken back because... Uh, this is a rather extensive kind of project compared to building a small vacation cottage for my children. Uh, 
And so, and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm back in Van where I grew up and, uh, uh, you know, people that, you know, knew that I converted to the Catholic Church and now we have uh, 13 children, they already think we're off of the uh, deep end. <laughs> so, you know, to contemplate, you know, doing this project in my own hometown is to, qu- to quote uh, a famous personality, you know, no prophet is uh, acceptable, you know, mm-hmm. especially in his own hometown. And at the same time, by this time, the clergy were suspicious of, uh, you know, the motives for which I did things and, you know, were concerned about what I might be up to next. And so uh, it wasn't something that I looked at and say, oh, wow, isn't this wonderful? You know, I wanted to be sure that uh, it wasn't just my idea and that as, mo- you know, as best I could, that I could discern that it was the will of God. So I began to think and pray in that regard. Uh, and during that process, by this time, I rather than you know jumping out of bed in the morning and throwing on my clothes and being out the door to work in you know five or ten minutes, I you know had adopted the discipline of you know, you know praying morning prayer before I went to work, and so on a particular Monday morning in the second week of the cycle of Psalms, I got up and I, as I prayed the Psalms and got to the last intercession, it says, seek what is beneficial for your brothers without counting the cost to help them on the way to salvation. And I presume that it was the Holy Spirit that gave me the presence of mind to think, Oh, maybe that's God telling me that I, you know, need to do this uh, project. And so I took out uh, a small yellow legal pad and I wrote on that yellow pad, seek what is beneficial for your brothers without counting the cost to help them on the way to salvation. And then I went off to work and uh, at that time I normally uh, went to daily mass at our parish, St. Stephen, in Oil City, but I couldn't tell you anymore why I couldn't make it to Mass uh, at St. Stephen. So St. Patrick's in Franklin had a nine o'clock morning Mass, so I decided to go there. And so when I arrived, I walked through the doors, and they have uh, glass doors before you go into the nave. And I looked in, and Monsignor was still praying morning prayer with the faithful who had showed up early. And so I had a little debate with myself. Should I wait here until they're done with morning prayer or should I go in and uh, you know, you know, join them? And I decided to go in. And when I opened the doors and walked into the church, Monsignor Herbine said, Seek what is beneficial for your brothers without counting the cost to help them on the way to salvation. So I said, Uncle, <laughs> I'm going to do this thing. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, as much as I you know, know how to discern the will of God, you know, I, you know one thing that I... Uh, one principle of seeking the will of God that I don't know whether... Uh, it's, uh, I'm sure as, you know, uh, some smart guy said originality is only the art of forgetting your sources. So uh, I don't know whether this is original or not, but you know, uh, if you're seeking the will of God, here's, don't take the approach. God, if you show me what you want me to do, then I'll decide whether I want to do it or not. The pro- if you want to know the will of God, Say this, God, if you show me what you want me to do, I promise you I'll do it. Hmm. And so living by that principle, when, you know, that happened, you know, I had no qualms about, uh, you know, entering into the project that 18 months later was dedicated by uh, Bishop Donald Troutman, uh, Bishop of Erie, uh, on December 4th, 1999. And so that 
and you know that took us from you know praying the liturgy the hours at every opportune time together with you know whoever happened to be part of you know particular apostolic work that we were a part of to having a specific place where we made the commitment to pray all seven canonical hours six days a week and then we took a we take a break on Sunday for morning resume uh, Sunday vespers uh, in the evening, you know. But you know, I have to say that when when we began to build the house of prayer, we really didn't begin building it with the specific intention of the, you know. When it was finished, we were going to, you know, pray and promote the liturgy of the hours. It was when we were well into the project, and a fellow that's worked for me for many years as part of all of our apostolic uh, extravagances. Uh, uh, we were standing up in the foyer, you know, looking at each other, say, you know, you know, this place is almost done. What are we going to do with it? Because <laughs> we certainly don't have time to run retreats. Or, uh, uh, and it was their standing, you know, that we came to the realization, all we're going to do is pray the liturgy of the hours. And we're going to invite people here to pray the liturgy of the hours with us. And whatever their retreat uh, reason is, they're going to, you know, do their own and we're going to you know, invite them to pray with us and in that way introduce them to the public and communal prayer of the church. There's a few things that stick out to me from your story here. Um, you know, one thing I'm curious about, maybe you have some wisdom uh, to share. You, I'm assuming you said that you're a clergy convert. That's I'm assuming true. that you became Methodist clergy because you've discerned a call by God to become clergy. I did. Um, and then you like have this sense of call to become Catholic and then you follow, and then you follow that. But then there's this call like to found the St. Thomas More house of prayer. And which kind of sounds like, as I hear a story, it developed organically over time to a point where it just becomes clear. This is, needs to be something that really, uh, develop but there's this a bit of a gap right i think for a lot of young people we're trained i'm not so young anymore but we're kind of trained like go to college and start your career and like that's your calling and it's going to begin what do you think about like this kind of gap in between where like what's god doing with you between this period of like i feel called to become a uh, Methodist clergy, but then it become Catholic, and you kind of lose that, right? Then it's the founding of the St. Thomas More House of Prayer, and would you say like that time period in between was wrestling with your sense of purpose? Um, was it not, not at all? That, it, that, that, that has never been an affliction that I had to uh, deal with. <laughs> My call to what we would call full-time Christian service happened in my bedroom when I was 16, reading Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, which says, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me because he has you know, uh, called me to preach the good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives. And so when I read that, I knew that God was calling me, and the only thing I knew that... Uh, you know, he would be calling me to would be a free Methodist preacher. And so, you know, being committed to obedience, even though that was the last thing that I wanted to do, I knew I was going to do it because I knew that God had spoken to me in that. And so uh, pursuing that uh, call led to you know college uh, seminary and after seminary to you know Flint Michigan to follow that call of preaching the good news to the poor in inner city Flint Michigan where Patty and I ran a halfway house and I visited prisoners and we began to you know uh, have uh, our children uh, and then 
through various uh, providential circumstances, uh, discerned that my father's encouragement that I come back to help him run the family business uh, was uh, indeed the, within the well providential will of God, and so we moved back home. And I, but you know, never lost the sense of uh, preaching the good news to the poor. You know, because you know th- that opportunity is close at hand, to, no matter uh, uh, where you are, and so uh, our sense of you know, absolutely, you know, uh, pursuing obedience to God's will, no matter what the context, and to our surprise, the context ended up being the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Uh, but there was uh, no sense that there wasn't continuity uh, in everything, you know, in the... Uh, uh, journey that we you know uh, f- followed in obedience to what we believed was the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so it just you know the you know, when we entered the church, the first apostolate, because we entered the church uh, influenced by her preservation of uh, the uh, truth of the uh, immorality the of uh, contraception. And so uh, when we entered the church, we first started looking for people who were interested in natural family planning. Uh, there's their heart, you know, in 1984 in a parish of 1,000 families, they were hard to find. You know, we found one in a parish of 1,000, but we, I, you know, we searched out the natural family planning apostolate in the diocese and, you know, entered into collaboration uh, with the uh, directors of that uh, uh, apostolate. And that was the, uh, probably this nucleus around which, you know, we developed, you know, friendships and uh, uh you know, persons who were interested in learning to pray the liturgy of the hours. Uh, so, uh, so even though you left, you you were called to leave behind um, professional ministry as ordained Methodist clergy, you you still maintained like the principle of evangelization as something deeply rooted within your heart. Like, even if I'm not called any longer to be clergy, I'm going to still live my life inspired by the gospel, whether I'm working or whatever it is that I'm doing. And then that principle, deeply rooted principle, continued itself to um, even the founding of the St. Thomas More House of Prayer. Uh, Yep, that would be correct. I think one one of the things that I've, I've seen is how... As as you've recounted this to me, you know before of this uh, of your story of of you know deeper conversion of you know of obviously coming into the church, embracing this call. Um, it makes so much sense to me because you know that initial call of you know preaching the good news to the poor uh, comes out continues to come out in so many different ways, but specifically I think with regards to the liturgy of the hours. You know, when before I came here as the director, I was bringing groups up, uh, you know, I was doing parish ministry and we were bringing groups up here uh, over the course of a few years. And I just remember the conversation, I think the first conversation having with Wayne after I think is maybe morning prayer or uh, one of the hours of prayer. I, I actually, I think it may have been office of readings. I think there were a handful of us that had gotten up for <laughs> office of readings and uh, we were sitting there in the in our great room here in the in the retreat center, and uh, Wayne comes out, and I said, uh, you know, would you be willing to uh, share with us uh, our group later on after morning prayer uh, about the liturgy of the hours? And Patty, Wayne's wife, looks at me and says, "You don't know what you've gotten yourself into." <laughs> And uh, I said, well, we would love it. So he said he agreed to. So 
after, I think it was after morning prayer, um, we all gathered around and just the passion and the zeal uh, with which he shared the, um, the truth of the teaching of the church on the liturgy of the hours and the true nature of this prayer uh, just came out. So, I mean, it was, com- it was so compelling. It was so compelling. I just remember having this unexpected moment the first time we came here, this unexpected moment of actually a deeper conversion of heart of myself saying, I want in on this. I want, I want more. You know, I had been praying uh, morning prayer, I think pretty regularly, um, kind of dabbling with office of readings and some of the other hours. But it was at that moment where my heart really caught fire at hearing uh, Wayne's testimony. And, and so that, that conviction and that call that he has had on his life to proclaim the good news, to proclaim the gospel has come out, I think, in so many different ways. But in particular, in, in uh, relevant to our conversation is how that's come out, come out specifically in the context of sharing the, the truth and the beauty of, of the church's teaching and, the, and uh, of her prayer, on her prayer, uh, the Liturgy of the Hours. My question is... Uh, well, I'm just w- I'm wondering if you could share what what are the most compelling reasons? Because you've shared this with me before, and I, I think uh, any time that I've I've experienced you sharing this with others, uh, I've found that they have similar reactions and they kind of catch fire as well. But what are the most compelling reasons why you think all Catholics should make the Liturgy of the Hours, in some measure at least, a priority in their lives? Well, I would rephrase the question. Okay, good. Here we go. <laughs> and I would say, uh, what are the compelling reasons that you will find in church teaching that would uh, give reason for all the Catholic faithful to uh, enter into the public and communal prayer of the church, uh, which right. is... You know, most people, see if you say divine office and liturgy, the hours, you're saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, maybe that's they probably already know that from listening to your previous <laughs> podcast. Uh, but you know, it's uh, so. In other, in other words, you're wanting to te- to to remind me that you're not just spouting off your own opinion. That's here. correct. Okay. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> right. uh, I, you know. Uh, you know that was one of the greatest uh, gifts that I received when I entered the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. is that I no longer needed to figure this thing out on my own because it had already been figured out for me. And mm-hmm. what I said to the priest at the end of the third lesson, which was on scripture and tradition, I said to him, Father, I'm a Catholic. He said, how can you, we still have 13 lessons. I said, I'm a Catholic. He said, uh, how so? I said, well, if what you taught us tonight is true, all you have to do from now on is tell me what the church teaches so I know what to believe. Hmm. He didn't think that was uh, the best <laughs> approach, but I still live with that conviction. And so when I began to read through the general instructions on the liturgy of the hours, uh, I began to see the uh, compelling reasons why the church has made, you know, in her 2,000 years of wisdom, you know, you know, those who believed and were baptized devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Mm-hmm. Okay, that is the seed planted you know, in the you know, it as recorded in Acts chapter two forty two that has flourished in the church over the centuries, known as the liturgy of the hours, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you know, so you know the compelling reasons. I'll just read yeah, some excerpts please. from the. Uh, uh, Apostolic Constitution that uh, from uh, Paul the Sixth, as uh, well as from the General Instructions. And once again, you can find uh, you can find this in the very opening pages of the 
single volume Christian prayer book, correct? That's correct. It's an abridged version. If you buy the four volume set, you'll find the, you know, the total uh, general instructions on the uh, liturgy hours uh, at the beginning of the first volume. Uh, or I can just Google it. Yeah, you can just. <laughs> I, I have news for you, Gabriel. The next time I turn on a computer will be the first time. <laughs> it's a blessed position to be in. <laughs> and I, I intend to get through the rest of my life that being true. Oh. So uh, that's, that, you know, Googling it would not be an option for me. <laughs> uh, so uh, I've already, you know, we talked about the, uh, what Paul VI said in regards to uh, the uh, relationship between uh, personal prayer and the prayer of the church. Uh, and again, I'll just repeat, he said, if the prayer of the divine office becomes general personal prayer, the relationship between the liturgy and the whole Christian life becomes clearer. Okay. So, uh, I mean, in other words, I'm thinking, you know, what he's saying is that if when you enter into the prayer of the church consistently, it informs the totality of the way you live your life every hour of the day. You know, mm-hmm. when I leave work over the years, I left work at about, you know, well, beginning it, uh, in the, the turn of the millennium, uh, when we began to pray the uh, uh, prayer public and communally here at the House of Prayer, I began to leave work at about you know twenty to eight and uh, come to the House of Prayer uh, to publicly and communally. Uh, enter into the prayer of the church. Well, it wasn't long before all my employees caught on to that. So, you know, over the years, two things new employees learned as soon as they joined the workforce. Number one, if you're talking to Wayne, don't swear. (laughs) And number two, he always leaves and goes to morning prayer at eight o'clock so you can let up a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so uh so you can see how that you know you know that not only you know entering consistently into the public and communal prayer of the church not only informed and convicted me every morning as to how I should treat my employees mm-hmm. it gave them an inkling that they will have to consider you know you know, you know, why would anybody think praying was that important that they would leave work every day and, you know, drive? And, you know, so, you know, it's kind of a two-edged sword. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, that's, a, you know, for me, that is a compelling reason because it gives public testimony to where your priorities are. Mm-hmm. So uh, the uh, general, the apostolic uh, Constitution goes on to say it is extremely desirable that the public prayer of the church should be offered by all from hearts renewed in acknowledgement of the intimate relationship within the whole body of the church, which, like its head, cannot be described except in terms of a church that prays. Hmm. Okay, and John Paul II hmm. references that in his letter to the church at the beginning of the new millennium uh, so that, you know, you know, the, you know, you know, as we go further on, we'll see that, you know, the constitution says the public and communal prayer of the church, you know, is, well, let me just go jump ahead here and see if I can find it. The liturgy hours, like other liturgical actions, is not something private, but belongs to the whole body of the church, which it manifests and influences. So it, the liturgy, the hours you know, throughout the day and week is what 
brings the church to life mm-hmm. so that people, can, oh, the Muslims are, you know, putting us to shame, you know, because they, you know, you know, you know publicly and communally, you know, offer their prayer and it makes the, you know, the Islam visible and a powerful force, you know, in the culture, you know, the liturgy, the hours is designed to have that same effect to bring into visibility the reality of the church whose purpose is to praise and glorify God first of all. Hmm. And the liturgy, the hours is the perfect gift by which God, to quote St. Augustine, by which God has made it possible for us to fulfill that duty. Hmm. So... For me, that's pretty compelling. Yeah. Uh, uh, here's the public uh, and communal prayer by the people of God is rightly considered to be among the primary duties of the church. That's either true or it's not true. And if it's true, then somebody needs to work at you know seeing if we can't you know bring that into a visible reality. Uh, for people to experience. Again, to quote Augustine, God could give no greater gift to mankind than to give them as their head the word through whom he created all things and to unite them to him as his members so that he might be the son of God and son of man, one God with the father, one man with men. So when we speak to God in prayer, we do not separate the Son from God. And when the body of the Son prays, it does not separate itself from its head. But it is the one Savior of his body, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who himself prays for us and prays in us and is the object of our prayer. He prays for us as our priest. He prays in us as our head. And he is the object of our prayer as our God. Mm. Let us then hear our voices in his and his voice in ours. It's no wonder the church says that this is the greatest honor afforded Christ's spouse to be before the throne of God, interceding for the salvation of the whole world. You know, and as you mentioned earlier, another you know compelling reason is that the liturgy of the hours extends to the different hours of the day, the praise and thanksgiving, the commemoration of the mysteries of salvation, the petitions and the foretaste of heavenly glory that are present in the Eucharistic mystery. Mm-hmm. Okay, so as you know, and it says in various other places, the liturgy of the hours is like the extension of the Holy Eucharist. The, the Holy Eucharist is the source. If you have a source of necessity, something must flow from the source mm-hmm. in order for the source to be able to fulfill the purpose for which it provides whatever it is, its purpose is. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I want to be part of that. Yeah. Let's see, in section 14, the general instruction says, those taking part in the liturgy of the hours have access to holiness of the richest kind through the life-giving word of God. Hmm. Pretty good reason to, to sacrifice some time to make it possible. What do you, uh, I mean, going through these, I mean, we're going to come to a close here um, soon. So, um, you know, as, and we haven't really touched on this, but I do want to give you a chance to, uh, to talk about this. And perhaps th- this is probably something for a whole podcast episode, but, um, you know, you encountered this through, you encountered the Liturgy of the Hours first through a Bible study and then began to embrace it as a lay person. You, were, uh, you had read paragraph 27, which said that, you know, when lay people gather uh, for, uh, for whatever reason, as families, as, as they pray individually, as they, um, you know, uh, gather for apostolic works, uh, when they pray the Liturgy of the Hours, that they contribute in no small way to the salvation of the world. 
you you found this to be compelling. You found this to be something that made you want to introduce it to as many people as possible. We know that you know as as liturgy, it is you know liturgy of ours is by nature public and communal, and we also know from John Paul II that he emphasized that uh, for the church to um, to to really be propelled into and to follow Christ, follow God into the new millennium, that prayer, public prayer specifically, had to be a hallmark uh, of the church's, uh, I think he says, the key to all pastoral planning. He does. Mm -hmm. Um, And he says, I'm going to do my part by doing catechesis on the Liturgy of the Hours. Uh, But then he says, you know, I want parishes to... To do this as well, at the very least, by doing you know so, uh, you know lauds and vespers, um, offering them. Can you just say? Can you say a few words on the on how this prayer really finds finds its truest home within the visible structures of the church? That this really find you know it, if it manifests the church in a very public way, it manifests it visibly. Uh, physically, then, you know, can you talk about how, how the parish is poised to be the, the perfect place to, for this to become the prayer that it truly is? I think that the key uh, sentence that uh, uh, John Paul II uh, uh, alluded to in his letter to the church at the beginning of the new millennium and then said specifically at the first Wednesday audience where he introduced his catechesis on the Psalms as his uh, contribution toward promoting the liturgy, the hours as the prayer of the whole people of God. He said precisely this, it is important to devote greater pastoral care to promoting the liturgy of the hours as a prayer of the whole people of God. I can't do that. Hmm. Why can't I do that? Because I'm not the pastor. You know, the priest is the pastor. And what John Paul II identifies here is the key to the liturgy of the hours truly becoming the prayer of the whole people of God and therefore fulfilling what he saw as the you know, pastoral program that would renew the whole of the church in the third millennium. You believe that? I do believe it. Yeah. And you know, he spent you know, he gave over eighty five Wednesday audiences catechizing on morning prayer and then when he, uh, when he died and Benedict XVI uh, became Pope, in an act of tremendous respect and humility, Benedict XVI took the documents that John Paul II had already prepared and used them as the content of his catechesis for the first 35 Wednesday audiences of his pontificate. Okay, it shows you the priority that John Paul II and Benedict XVI put on this truth that indeed promoting the liturgy of the hours as the prayer of the whole people of God is the key to the renewal of the church in the third millennium. And the reason, you know, the key word is pastoral, pastor, priest, is that if as John Paul II directed, if the Liturgy of the Hours becomes a key part of all pastoral planning, it would force the clergy to consider the Liturgy of the Hours as something more than their private obligation. Hmm. And that is the secret to this thing becoming, you know, uh, at least, you know, uh, something that is of consideration for the faithful, if the clergy would respond to the challenge that John Paul II laid down for them and begin to, as the, uh, back to the general instructions, it says in section 22, hence when the faithful are invited to the liturgy of the hours, so 
first uh, clue, the priest should be inviting. Mm-hmm. Wayne Hepler shouldn't be the only one inviting people to pray the liturgy of the hours. The priest should be inviting people to come together in unity of heart and voice. They show forth the church in its celebration of the mystery of Christ. And then, I'm not making this up. Here's what section 23 says. Those in holy orders or with a special canonical mission have the responsibility of initiating and directing the prayer of the community. Quote, they must work hard to ensure that all entrusted to their care may be united in prayer. They must, therefore, see to it that the faithful are invited and prepared by suitable instruction to celebrate the principal hours in common, Mm -hmm. especially on Sundays and feast days. There it is. There it is. (laughs) I rest my case. (laughs) And, you know, I think that... On a hopeful note, even though it's, you know, you don't have to be uncharitable. Uh, you only have to, you know, look at what has happened in the last 20 years to know that, you know, the response of the clergy to the challenge that John Paul II laid out before them has, you know, almost totally gone, you know, either unrecognized or ignored. And, uh, but the, with, the uh, process of the retranslation of the liturgy of the hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hear it's coming, you know, it's coming to its conclusion. And so at some point in the not too distant future, the, you know, the latest translation of the divine office will be, you know, made available for the church. And I think uh, Father Gallagher alluded to this as a moment of opportunity by which, you know, the, you know, what John Paul II laid out for us as a challenge for, we're only 20 years into the third millennium. So we still have 980 (laughs) years. So there's no, no reason to be discouraged. We're just getting started, you know, but uh, it's time to start. And with the new translation, it will give us an opportunity to challenge our pastors to take seriously what has been proposed as the program for the church uh, as she moves forward because it's all about Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And when you say, you know, you know, the church, sacred liturgy, liturgy, the hours, all of those words are synonymous with Jesus Christ. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Vox Sponse, a podcast on the Liturgy of the Hours brought to you by the St. Thomas More House of Prayer, a Catholic retreat center in the Diocese of Erie, Pennsylvania, with the mission of praying and promoting the Liturgy of the Hours, the public and communal prayer of the Catholic Church. For more information, visit us online at liturgyofthehours.org. Sorry.